coming out of uh, seminary back in the day, we uh, really thought that we were prepared well. Uh, I chose Dallas Seminary because uh, as a fairly new believer in Christ, I had been given many books to read, and it just seemed in that era, in the 70s, that there were a lot of authors that were currently teaching at Dallas Seminary, guys that I highly respected, John Walver, Charles Ryrie, uh, Zane Hodges in Greek, and so forth. And I thought, why go learn by, from men that were taught by these men at different seminaries? I might as well go to the homeland. So we moved on down to Dallas, and we spent four years uh, in study. Um, and it was an exciting time. I thought I was pretty well prepared for ministry, but of course, many of you know, my real hope was to leave Dallas and to enroll at the University of Chicago and uh, get my PhD and start teaching historical theology. That was my uh, bread and butter. It's what I'd love to do. But God does things that are fascinating. And um, it started with the woman that I currently was living with at the time, telling me that she was ready to have a child and that she had had enough of this higher education stuff. And so uh, I said, we kind of made a deal between us. You know, we're going to go, you know, maybe do with, you know, some ministry, but we're going to set a time of three years on that. And if we don't have a child in those three years, we're going to take it as a green light from the God himself saying, go move to Chicago so I wrote to Chicago, I asked for a deferred acceptance and enrollment, and they agreed to that, and um, we didn't really know what we were going to do, and one day at work, I worked for a, a package delivery company, I heard on the radio a guy saying, would anybody out there like to have free airline tickets to Omaha, Nebraska? And I was like, Omaha, Nebraska? You know, my, my mom lived there, I own parents live there, it's like, Wow. Yeah, that'd be great. So I called this guy, Doug, on the phone, and I said, uh, what's the deal? And he said, well, I've gone through the whole candidating process at this small church in O'Neill, Nebraska. And he said, um, I think it's a go. Unfortunately, my home church in Virginia says, wait a minute, if you're going to go and be a youth pastor somewhere, why don't you come home to Virginia? So now this poor church is stuck with non-refundable airline tickets. And, they, and they're looking for anybody that will come up there. And I said, so all we have to do is just say yes, and we get to tr travel for free. And they said, well, one small stipulation. You do have to go up to O'Neill and kind of more or less see if it could be a fit for you. And I said, a youth pastor? That's the last thing in the world that I wanted to be, you know. I'm a Dallas Seminary guy, for Pete's sake. We don't produce youth pastors and historical theology to boot, you know. I hadn't had any practical classes, so to speak. And uh, he kept talking to me, and we finally agreed. And I remember my wife and I and some good friends were visiting us, and they were saying, what if it's one of those little towns that has just a single blinking red light in it? And we were just laughing, ha, 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 ha. Sure enough, when we got to O'Neill, that's what we found. We were like so far away from anything that we understood as civilization when we rolled into that town. It was amazing. Uh, I, I remember telling people, no, no, I'm from Nebraska. And all the people in that area would say, no, you're from Omaha. There's a world of difference between outstate Nebraska and Omaha. And I learned the truth of that. But 
to our point today, uh, I thought that I knew what discipleship was about. Uh, I'd studied the word, I understood the, the language behind it. Um, I thought I was ready. And so my wife and I threw ourselves into the ministry. She was teaching high school, uh, the hard sciences, and I was working at the church, and we found in this small town a great acceptance and openness to blending kind of the two. I would uh, come onto campus routinely and have lunch with her students and uh, just a lot of openness to doing things, and it was kind of a neat thing. But uh, what I realized after a while is nothing of depth was happening. We were running a youth program, we, you know, the world's largest banana split, uh, a lot of jokes, a lot of fun, uh, minor application of the scriptures. It just wasn't going well. And one of my good friends from seminary, who also had taken a youth ministry job in Corvallis, Oregon, called me one day, and it was a call that would change my life in a drastic way. And he said, Dave, I got something for you. I want you to look into this. Do you know how to disciple? What a strange question. Of course I know how to disciple. You know, I, you want to talk about the word? You know, Neil, unfortunately, was a pastoral ministries major, which us theologians mocked them mercilessly during seminary, you know, like, are you guys getting together, and are you actually going to open the word in English? <laughs> you know, all those kind of things, and, uh, but Neil and I nevertheless maintained our friendship, and we had a great time, but Neil was saying, I, I just got done going to a weekend seminar on how to disciple, taught by a group called Sun Life, and I was really resistant to it for some reason. I think it actually just kind of hurt my pride. Like, why would I go to a rinky-dink group like Sun Life and go to something called How to Disciple? And he goes, you will love this. I just, the whole time I was there for the weekend, I kept thinking of one thing. Dave Foster would love this. It's just going through the gospel, studying how Jesus did it. It's totally biblical-oriented, and this is just something you need to be at. So I hung up the phone without making any promises, and I, uh, I looked in, uh, that time you, there weren't computers, <laughs> so we couldn't just go online and look it up. I had to call the headquarters and say, where's the closest place in O'Neill, Nebraska that I can go to and get training in this, or at least look into it? And they said, well, we actually have a seminar coming up in like two weeks in Holdridge, Nebraska. And that just added to my incredulity. I was like, Holdridge, Nebraska? I mean, who goes to Holdridge, Nebraska, let alone to hold a conference, you know? And so I was like, well, all right. So I own, with her encouragement, said, go. So I went by myself, and uh, a guy by the name of Bill Clem was the uh, instructor. Bill would go on to work uh, very closely with uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. He was a phenomenal a uh, discipler in his own right, and we spent Friday night and half a Saturday just walking through the strategy of how to disciple. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because it's, it's pertinent to what we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at who in the discipling question. Who? Not just who gets discipled, but who does the discipling. We want to look at both sides of that. Who gets discipled, who's the raw material, who are the 12, who are the 72, who are the hundreds that Christ discipled, but also 
who is the discipler? Who has the ability to do that? And what I loved about Bill Clem's presentation that day was the reality of discipleship. When we think about discipleship, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, we get very idealistic. Well, all you have to do is find someone who's faithful, available, teachable, responsive to authority. You've got the raw material. And if you do steps one, two, three, four, like we talked about a week ago, you've got a discipling environment. It can happen. But then something inserts itself into that that doesn't make it as clean called the human condition. No matter how hard you work at discipling, no matter whether you're the discipler or the disciplee, something gets in the way. And that's the sin nature. Bill was sharing with us and was talking to us about his youth group in Michigan and how it was just booming and he'd been doing it for 10 years and just so encouraging. Let's do discipleship. Let's understand what it is, why we're doing it, how it's going to happen. And then he shared with us in a very real way what had happened this previous week. His number one guy, it's a senior in his youth group, who was discipling others. He was speaking at statewide events for Christ. He was, in all regards, knocking it out of the park. Uh, got arrested. He'd gotten arrested right before Bill left to come to Holdridge, Nebraska. It turns out that this young kid worked for a department store. I think it was Dillard's, if I remember right, in their city just outside of Detroit. And this kid had, for over two years, been involved in a shoplifting scheme where he invited his friends in. His friends would try on clothes in the dressing room and they would put on a whole bunch of clothes and then put their clothes they wore on, on top of that, and he would let them out a back door. And this had been going on and on, and through this, he was able to uh, fund his car, his lifestyle, all these different things, and no one had really questioned him. It seemed to be a foolproof plan until God showed up and decided, you know what, it's more important to me that you be the person that I want you to be than that you be successful, or even that you preserve the image of my church. And so that weekend, the police had gotten wind of what was going on, and they had set up cameras, especially in the back hallway where the store was, and there he was on film, letting kids out routinely, once, twice, four times. And everything in that kid's life was destroyed. His testimony, uh, his future. He was going to actually have to go serve time because he was over 18. Um, the image of Bill's efforts at discipleship were ruined. And Bill said, I tell you this story because I want you to understand that when we disciple others, we run into this human condition. It happens. We see it with Christ, right? Uh, we could, oh yeah, Judas. Yeah, well, Judas is an extreme example, maybe even a prophetic example. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with Judas, but we don't need Judas. We could just look at the others, the other 11, constantly stumbling over themselves, constantly at war with each other, constantly not understanding exactly what it is that Christ was trying to communicate to them. Discipleship is messy. If you walk away with anything this morning, 
I want you to understand that, whether it's the discipler or the disciplee, we all contain a sin nature, and it seeks to trip us up. The more successful we are at discipling, probably the greater temptation is placed before us. And how we live through that, it is not a testimony to whether Christ is really with a person or not. It's more of a testimony to just another step that we take when we disciple someone. You see, what we're doing in discipleship, amongst other things, and we're going to read this in chapter 4 here of Ephesians, is that God is identifying those areas of our life that have not yet been yielded to him. Uh, it's impossible to say that I've been discipled and discipled well if we're still allowing ourselves and others to live lives that do not honor God. It's just simple as that. The Apostle Paul is addressing this. So let's read our passage. We're in Ephesians 4, and I'll return to this story in a little bit, but we're going to start reading in verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul writes, And he, that is Jesus, gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Don't miss that. Two words referencing who it is that is involved in the discipling process. This is happening to mature, to bring of age, to become all that you're supposed to be, to, in a sense to become ripe as believers, right? To the measure, secondly, of the stature there's, a, there's a, some means, or you think of a ruler, a tape measure, whatever it is, you're going to be measured out, and your stature is going to be held accountable so that you're more like Christ, to the fullness of Christ. And then he continues to write, so that we may no longer be children. Oh, these are going to be a series of immaturity markers. So that we're no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, in contrast, in speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, still again, a measuring illustration. We're going to be measured out to grow up in every way unto Jesus, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Powerful, powerful passage. Who is it that's doing the discipling? He starts off back in verse 11, saying, well, you know, he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. You know, it's, it's a very weirdly structured sentence here that Paul was using. There's nothing else quite like it in his writings. Um, what's he doing? He, he not just gave us those apostles, but he's with those apostles. People that are in leadership in the church to do the work. Now, this is not a complete list. In case you're looking through there and saying, well, good, I'm off the hook this morning. I'm not listed on there in any way, shape, or form. This is just a, a short list of things that he is including 
Uh, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? Not at all. Are all teachers? I don't think so, right? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Just earnestly desire the gifts. So Paul's just listing possibilities, pastors, shepherds, teachers, whatever your role is. God has gifted you in something. And those are the people that are in charge of the church. And then he comes up with a... Uh, statements that are really a series of three pronouns in here or prepositions excuse me and he says to equip the saints this is in verse 12 for the work of ministry for building up of the body of christ now there is the way that this is structured with a definite article and so what i'm going to put forth this morning is that only the first one on there is referencing people who are being involved in the discipling process as the discipler uh, if you read this otherwise, you're thinking, well, only these people are involved with equipping saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body, and so forth. In every way, so far in this passage, I, since I don't ascribe to that, I'm free of that. Because you're saying, well, are there any more apostles? Hmm, probably not. You know, if we're going by the classic definition of an apostle, someone who actually saw and walked and experienced Christ in the flesh... Uh, there's no one left alive who has that experience. Well, are there prophets? Mm, probably not. Not like what uh, was used in Scripture. Well, how about evangelists? Possibly, right? But what he does get to is the shepherds, teachers, yeah. Uh, and then there's more. In fact, what we see in the rest of Paul's writings, whether we're in uh, Romans chapter 12 uh, or other places, is that we all have gifts. We're all gifted to do the work. And you don't need a gift in order to do discipling. But it helps, depending on how you do discipling, what you understand to be your method of discipling. But nevertheless, whoever you are, if you're the one who is doing the discipling, I would argue that only the first prepositional statement refers to you, to equip the saints. As we've gone through the four E's this last summer, uh, as we're teaching that, we realize the end point is equipping. That's what I want to get to. There's engage, there's evangelize, establish, and equip. And he says, those who, Paul is saying, those who are in these positions, at minimum, need to be the ones to equip the saints, and then it would be better said that these next two prepositional statements are in actually actuality focusing on those who are being discipled all of us should be involved in the work of the ministry all of us should be involved with building up the body of christ the niv version got this correct esv i don't think i agree with their translation so it's not just it's all upon people who are doing the discipling it's upon the disciplees as well it's a mutuality of purpose I, as the discipler, are coming along. My job is to equip you. Uh, your job is to help us all work towards the building up of the ministry and of the body of Christ. An amazing statement. He says something similar back in verse 7, right? He says, to each one of us, notice that, back in verse 7, chapter 4, to each one of us, 
according uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each of us have that ability. We all should be disciples, and if we're going to do this, we have to do it together. So, who's being discipled? Who are the disciplers? All of us have the gift, a gift. We don't necessarily uh, command it to go find it, but it's something that God has endowed within you through his Holy Spirit when you became a believer. But from this point on, to disciple others doesn't require a supernatural gift. It just requires a willingness to be involved in ministry. And what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to work for that ministry. I'm supposed to work for the building up the body of Christ. What this means is that we can't just come to church on a Sunday and listen to someone preach and listen, watch as someone leads us in music and see those who are working at Kidmen and doing all those things. And we just sit here. We just sit here watching sort of the program go by. That's not what he's calling us to. We're supposed to be involved in the messiness of that human condition, involved with other people. And then he gives us a, a great thing. This is not just a knowledge about Christ, but it's a firsthand relational knowing him. We're supposed to know him for the building up of the body of Christ. And then he says the result is that we have attained to the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of God. So two things that we're trying to build towards. One is unity. Unity of the body of Christ is so, so important. We have to be involved with not letting things get in the way of discipleship. Nothing kills a discipling program more than disunity. So going back to my friend Bill's example, his best guy messed up had been messing up, had been living a double life. If you're in that church, what do you think of Bill as your youth pastor? Is this time to say, you know, just like with many other things in your life, Bill, this is proving that you're ill-equipped to actually be in charge of others. We could get rid of him. We could say nasty things about him. We could get rid of him. I have another kid that I love dearly. Uh, I discipled him myself uh, for years, and he just turned out to be one of the best people that I know for Christ. Uh, he went to a college in Nebraska, small college. Uh, he got there, did his usual work. Eventually, he got made the uh, president of the student senate, and I remember I went to campus to visit with him and some of our other students, and I said, how's it going? He says, great, I'm so excited, Dave. I just put forth the budget to the faculty uh, for next year when I'm president of the Student Senate. And I said, oh, great, why are you excited? And he said, well, I've gotten rid of everything that I didn't like. I said, really? He goes, yep. He says, the Atheist Club, out. The uh, sort of the other kind of marginal things, out. He said, but what I did keep in there was FCA and my Bible study. And I said, you can't do that, Ethan, that's crazy. And he said, yeah, well, why not? And I didn't really have a great answer for him. I just kind of waited to see how the school was going to come down on him in a heavy way. And you know what? They never did. All the money that year went to those two endeavors. Uh, I, I don't know how that happened, but it did. And he was just that kind of guy. He just would take the bull by the horns and he would run with it. Uh, he became one of the leaders 
uh, crew in the state of Nebraska. He was uh, just motivated. Eventually, he took on the, the presidency of a grad resources group for grad students, moved to Dallas, has a great wife and kids. And then the time came when he was asked to come and pastor the church that I used to pastor in Nebraska. And I couldn't be more excited for him. I thought, you grew up in this town, you know this small town, you know, you're not going to be like one of those guys that moves in and never has had any experience here and you're going to get bored. But his family loved it. And then news came that he had been arrested. Arrested for driving while under the influence. And it turns out that he had a secret addiction to alcohol. He was a binge drinker. And this town and this church don't know what to do with him. He's a godly man. And so when you go, well, Dave, how can he be a godly man if he, no, 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 no. You see, that's the messiness of discipleship. I'm calling on us to be disciplers. And the truth is, is that many of us are sitting here today saying, I can't do this job. I won't do this job. I'm not qualified to do this job. It's too messy. I'm too messy. I have failed God so many times, over and over and over. If you really knew the truth of my life, Dave, I struggle with this and with that. I'm a gossip. I speak hateful things. I'm lazy. I'm proud. And there's a whole other, many other things that we could put in there. But here's the truth. God still wants you. You still have something to contribute in this process. Yeah, you need to get some things straight with the Lord, no doubt. And like my friend who I was just talking about, uh, it's been true in my life. God is going to catch you and deal with that in his way and his time. And, you know, you can ask questions like many of us do when we hear these kind of stories. It's like, why didn't God bring this person up short 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Why continue to let them get to this place? And I don't know the answer to that. I just know that if you're submissive and you're obedient to the Lord, those things in your life which don't please God will eventually come to the surface, right? People will discover them. Your wife, your kids will discover them. And God will say, deal with it now. But never does that give us an excuse to say, God, I am so wretched, as Paul says in Romans 7, I am so wretched that I cannot be used in your purposes any longer. That's never what Christ says. Christ says, come to me. My yoke is light, right? Uh, I, I want to, to love you, to forgive you. Get your act together, and let's start this marvelous journey again. And we renew it time after time. We don't see sin the same way that God sees it. We pick out the big ones. I'm telling you the story of my friend because... Well, we can all relate to that. We've seen people who drink too much. We rarely step on the ones of people who eat too much or gossip too much or just don't want to do things because life is too fun in the other arenas. And God says, no, come on back. I need you. You have a special life experience that I can use in this person and this person and this person's life. My thought is, I, I talked to my young friend, and I just said, you know, God's going to use this. 
God's going to show other people how forgiveness works and how restoration works. You can do this. Don't quit on it. I pray for him. I pray for myself. We walk that fine line, that messy condition. Who are disciplers? They're broken people. Who are disciplers? They're immature people. Who are disciplers? They're people that probably have no right to the name of Christ, if we're really honest. But then again, that is all of us. Nobody is excused from discipling because of past mistakes or even present mistakes. And who are we discipling? People who are just like us. People who need someone to come through and say, I understand, I've been there, I, un I want to walk this journey with you. Notice what Paul says as he goes on this. Not only are we striving for unity of faith, but the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That is not a set condition. And earlier I said this is like a ruler. This is something like a tape measure. I'm getting built up to get to a certain plot. Well, yeah, you are. But when do we reach that spot? When do we become all that we can become in Christ? It's not until we stand before him. We're always working towards that. I might be a little further ahead than you. You might be a little further ahead than me. But it doesn't matter. As long as I'm moving in that direction, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so how do we know where we're at? Well, then Paul gives us a list of things that kind of are indicative of the immature believers. Where we're tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind to die. The storm imagery we talked not too long ago about the apostles struggling in their boat as they crossed the Sea of Galilee, not knowing if they were going to make it to the other side. And Paul says, much is the same way when we don't know solid doctrine. One of the things that you can best do to help yourself in your ethical walk with Christ is to understand the theology of what it means to be in Christ. Too often we separate the two. Well, theology is over here, practical living is over here, you know, only the eggheads and the people who are really abstract are on this side, and those people who walk in real life are on this side. But the truth is, ethics, uh, how to live, and what's the practical way of walking in Christ, um, it all stems in, its, in the right way of doing that from your theology, from understanding who Christ is. We have to be students of this word. We have to know who Jesus is. We have to study everything we can about him as a person, Right? So we don't get carried to and fro by waves. We're not carried about by every little fad that comes through the Christian world. By human cunning. Oh, how many pastors stand in front of people who are really, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, if that pastor tells me this is right, then it is right. We don't take the personal responsibility of examining the Word of God and saying, no, this is not what the Word is saying. Uh, we don't want to be taken apart by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All these things mark immaturity. It's infancy versus maturity. It's tossed about versus being held together. It's deception versus speaking the truth. It's of human origin versus from Christ. Crafty people serving themselves versus honest, loving people serving others. No matter where you find yourself today, I can only say this that God has a plan for you. It may be that you need to work on some things, get yourself in a position where you're growing in him, but I, can I just encourage you, 
It's not by working on your behavior. It's by working on your understanding of who you are in Christ, who he is in you. That's called theology. You have to submerse yourself into that in order that your lifestyle will reflect him. And then Paul says this amazing thing. Rather, uh, I think that's verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head. I love this phrase, speaking the truth in love. Really, when this is literally pulled out of here, it says it's truthing in love. It's an action verb. The thought that truth is something one does is seen in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even the Qumran scrolls. It's an action. So too often we think, well, the truth is just something mental. It's cognitive. But actuality, this way that Paul is using it, saying that truth is the way you live. Are you truthful this morning? Are people seeing the you that you are saying with your mouth? Do we need to go back and catch up a little bit and say, well, in order for me to be a discipler, I have to be living, truthing in love. I have to do that. It's my character. A truthful person is one who lives out his or her covenant obligations, which include both what is said and what is done. There's nothing that people seem to dislike more than what we call a hypocrite, somebody who says one thing and lives another. But I would put this forth to you. We're all hypocrites. One of my good friends, Rob, was down at a convenience store gas station getting his morning coffee. And people were standing around talking, and they were talking about our church because uh, the church just doesn't necessarily, it's not well known by others what we believe, what we don't believe. And these people were saying, well, we're a cult. You know, they're not Catholic, they're not Presbyterian, they're not Methodist. We just don't know how to label them. And one of the guys said, you know, the truth is here is that there are a bunch of hypocrites in that church. And he told a couple stories about people that he knew from church that had not done what they professed to believe. And my friend Rob, just kind of standing on the periphery of this group of men, just kind of broke in and he said, you are absolutely right. I'm a hypocrite. We're hypocrites. We don't measure up to that which we profess. But we're trying. Man, are we trying. I hope you guys will forgive us. I hope you guys will understand that we don't mean to be judging you. We're just trying the best we can to live for him. We're truthing in love. Get rid of the pride. Get rid of the laziness. We're going to go forward. Both truth and love bind us to another person. For we cannot live truth and violate covenant relations. Truth involves a true assessment of facts and a consideration of what is real as opposed to illusions that people hold. It's a holistic frame of mind. Truth is so important in Scripture. Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the law. You know, that's what he is. That's who he is. We have to live truthful life. And Paul finishes this by saying that we are a body held together. You may look across the aisle here or front or back and say, well, there's someone who doesn't really understand what it means to be a Christian. I know how they live. And the point here, Paul is saying, no, that's not how we look at each other. We're held together by every joint 
which it is equipped. Do you know the word religion at its basis has the idea of tendons, of sinew, holding bone to bone, muscle to bone. That's what we're supposed to be about as the body of Christ. We're holding each other together. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Powerful, powerful statements. We want to live in such a way that we're holding each other together. Who needs put back in joint this morning? A lot of mornings I do. I need someone to come alongside of me, put me back into joint. I had some of my brothers in the ministry call me this morning just to let me know they're praying for me. And it's been in some ways a very difficult week for Ion and I in different, different fronts. But all I could say is, boy, do I need your prayer. My daughter came over, my youngest one, yesterday, and she says, Dad, you sound so discouraged. You need to remember who you are in Christ. She was functioning like a tendon. She was reconnecting me. I, I don't have any tendons left in my right knee, right? A lot of you could say the same thing. You know, it, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't take much for me to throw my leg out when I'm walking or going up a step. It causes pain. I wish there was a way to reconnect it. But the truth is, we don't have to stay out of joint, not with each other and not with Christ. Because when the body is functioning totally, we build one another up. We grow in Christ. Do you need to have someone put you back in joint this morning? Can you help put someone else back in joint today? That's what discipleship is about. Who is it? It's a discipler and a disciplee who live in Christ, who understand it gets messy, that people experiences are never the way that you think they're going to be, but it's worth the effort to live truth and love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace. I thank you for your just willingness to persevere with us. You're slow to anger. You care. Father, I know that uh, we can minister to one another. We can build this body for you. Father, I pray that as we, whether we're the discipler or the disciplee, that we'll remember who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. And may this body, may Parkview North, always be a body of tendons, of sinew. And may in that strength, we hold together strong. In Jesus' name, amen.